continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with cops. Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I am Bryce Hales, and I'm here with my friend Brad Edwards, and we are both pastors in the Western U.S. seeking to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. And we are in a series on our podcast right now where we're asking the question, how do we receive rather than achieve our identity? Brad, we've been exploring issues around identity formation and the ways that modern culture seeks to shape us in individualistic ways. And I'm super excited today about our conversation because we're talking with Kyle Strobel. Kyle's a systematic theologian who teaches spiritual theology for Talbot's Institute for Spiritual Formation at Biola University. He's the author of several books, including The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, and most recently, Where Prayer Becomes Real. So as we're talking about issues of identity and the gospel, I'm really excited to talk uh, with Kyle about spiritual formation today. So thanks, Kyle, so much for joining us. Hey, guys, it's good to be with you. Great to have you here. So Kyle, um, could you just to get us kicked off, just tell us what, what does spiritual formation mean? What are we talking about when we're talking about spiritual formation? How is that distinct from discipleship? How is that different from... Bible study, studying theology, gives the broad overview. Yeah, well, you know, spiritual formation is one of those things that has had a lot of different terms over the years. I mean, we used to just call this Christian ethics. If we go way back in like the Dutch Reformed tradition, um, the Puritans would call it practical divinity or experiential theology. And, and so there's all these different kind of terms to talk about this historically. Um, very simply, it is the Spirit's work of forming us more deeply into the image of Christ. Um I say the Spirit's work there not to somehow say that our work is irrelevant or somehow kind of tossed aside and, and kind of not taken into consideration. Um, there is there is work involved, um, but it does highlight the fact that it is not our work primarily. Hmm. And, and that is, you know, in fact, I would say for most of what goes on, you think of discipleship, you think of even um, Bible study. A lot of times I think we focus on techniques and what I think of as technology of formation that is primarily secular. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think of the first book I read on hermeneutics, read the Bible for all it's worth by Fian Stewart. Um, that book was utterly secular. Hmm. <laughs> like it how no, so? Well, it, it, it just looked at how secular historical studies departments read historical documents. And they said, Oh, the Bible's historical document. We'll read it this way too. And at no okay. point does it ask the question of what is the letter and why does it kill and wh who is the spirit and why does he give life from Second Corinthians 3? Or why is the knowledge of God only available in the face of Jesus Christ, as we're told in Second Corinthians 4? Or what is why is scripture a double-edged sword that leaves us naked and exposed, as you see in Hebrews 4? And so, like, it's... We, we actually don't start often with an account of scripture as holy scripture and then move into a discussion of, well, what does it mean to stand before this text and to hear God's word? And, and so that is a distinctively kind of theological way to think about that. Similarly with formation stuff, what happened, and you know, you, you see this in the current iteration of the spiritual formation movement. It started probably in 1978 with my birth. No, I'm kidding. Um, it started in 1978 <laughs> with, um, <laughs> with Richard Foster's book. Um, where he wrote his book, celebration of discipline where, yeah. you know, I remember, and it's, it's a good book. And, and in many ways, what rich, all Richard was trying to do with that book is say, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we used to talk about here that I just never heard in the church growing up, like fasting and meditation mm -hmm. and all these disciplines. The problem, though, is culturally, particularly our culture, which is a self-help culture, is when 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 people have taken up that kind of mantle of, oh, we should have been doing these disciplines, they end up just being Aristotle. Right? If, if all we're doing is habituating activities to grow, that's Aristotle. Right? Like, there's nothing spiritual about mm. that. Um even if it's good activities, and, and you could do that just as much with the scripture. <laughs> as you do with anything else. And so when, when I kind of name spiritual formation as a, as a work of the spirit, well, now, now we're working in a different register. What we might think of as the register of holiness rather than goodness or something like that. And that, that shifts it into a very different sort of discussion. I really like how you're, you're describing this and you're kind of, 
I don't know if you're intending to do this, but it just in my mind, as you're going, you're you're kind of peeking in and out of different categories that I I think we're more used to having far more hard separation between them, mm. right? You know, you, you started by talking about ethics, you know, and yeah. and like when I went to seminary, which was only about a year and a half after I became a Christian, I started at seminary. Wow. It was right in the middle of the time when it was this really hard reaction against, you know, quiet time and yeah. a, a pietism, like a mm. pietistic approach or, or attitude toward spiritual formation, relationship with God that was, I think where the critique was accurate was that there can be a bit of an emotionalism and if you didn't have an emotional high or or contentment that was like transcendent in a way that was actually probably more Buddhist than Christian, <laughs> then you you were doing it wrong. And and there was a, kind of a reaction to that. And I think like I overreacted to that too mm. because it doesn't come easy to me. C- could you talk a little bit about how just kind of that holistic nature of what you're describing has implications for right now? Because I feel like we just end up kind of the evangelical world in general, kind of is just switching like a light switch back on and off yeah. from a more pietistic emotionalism versus a more kind of mere information. I don't want to overstate with like a, a, a deadness, but just a, a lack of joy and affection in there. Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, I, I usually, yeah, I'm a systematic theologian, so I, I often start just thinking about, well, how does the doctrine order us here? You know, and what, what I find interesting is, you know, as, as Protestants, we're always tempted to centralize justification in ways that I think tends to be harmful. Um, and so th- the goal of faith becomes being justified or something like that, right? Whereas that decentralizes Christ from salvation. And so if we're constantly ordering the realities mm. of salvation, I think like scripture does around Christ and therefore adoption into Christ's into, into God's life. So, so this is, I'm thinking of a passage like Ephesians 2.18, where we have access to the Father in the Son by the Spirit, where we're caught up now in the Son and therefore are sharers mm. of his life, very, very explicitly there. Then, you know, spiritual formation is about sharing in the life of God because that's, that's the formation. So now I don't stand before a law. I stand before Christ. Mm. And this is why we talk about mm. faithfulness in the Christian life and not law-abidingness. Like you're faithful to a person, you ab- you're you're abiding to a law, like to as an object. Right? There's a very different dynamic there. And so what's funny, like you look at the Protestant traditions, I think the particularly Reformed traditions in this regard, always understood formation relationally. Hmm. But we've always been tempted because I think we are often driven by polemics. I mean, justification is an obvious one there, right? Where we're trying to differentiate us from them. So we're getting all these fights <laughs> polemically, whether it's today between us and Pentecostals or Lutherans or Catholics or whoever, that we, you know, I see this with my students. I have a lot of students that, that well, they think they will, the, the hill to die on is justification by faith until I show them they don't actually believe in justification by faith at all because they believe they're saved because they understand the doctrine of justification by faith. Mm. which is to reject it, right? <laughs> like the, and, and the looks on their face, but because they see it, they realize like, oh, I've come to believe that if you believe this, that's what justifies you. Yeah. And, you know, that's the constant temptation. So we, we get in these modes where we're just trying to get the right answers. But, you know, here's, here's the difficulty. Let me give you an image here. Mm. So, and I'll use this with my students because this is, I think, it's easy to see in seminary students, actually. And I think most people, even if they're not seminary, will relate to it. But I'll, so like a lot of what I end up doing is pushing my students into prayer. So when I'm teaching theology, I'm like, look, you can think about all this all you want. You should. Why don't you actually bring this into prayer, though, and, and ask the question, does this show up in my prayer life? And so I'll have students who they come to seminary and they really want to get the kind of doctrine of the atonement down. Right. I really want to get this right. It's, you know, praise God. They should. That's great. And they often do think really well about it until they pray. And then they pray and their prayer life is an attempt to try to atone for their sins. Mm-hmm. And much of their prayer life is actually turning against themselves because in their fantasy world, they think God is standing there ready to strike until they strike first and show him, no, no, I will take care of this. And they ramp themselves up literally against themselves to try to kind of placate an angry deity. And so here's the problem. They're, they're, what I think of as their conscious theology didn't help them there. 
And, and what happened is their subconscious theology, which is what comes out when we stand in the presence of God, that begins to drive them. And so you see this in a passage like 1 John 3.19, when John imagines a Christian is before God, right? So we're now explicitly drawn into God's presence and their heart condemns them. Okay, that's interesting, right? So, so John assumes that for a Christian, you may draw near to God, to use the language of Hebrews, and your heart may condemn you. But he then says, because now what's the obvious thing that Christians are going to do? They're going to think God's condemning me. John says, God is greater than your heart and he knows everything. Mm. So, okay. so now he's, he's reordering you to who God is. But for me now, it's how do we, how do we have the conscious theology that so guides us? Because that's your conscious theology is your shepherd in the presence of God. But your conscious theology doesn't change your subconscious theology. You can't just shout doctrine into your soul and expect somehow your soul. If you could do that, then it could be self-help, right? Then you just look in a mirror every day. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. You know, you could just tell yourself, God gosh, loves you. you like me. That's right. God likes me. You know, this is, you know, and, and, but that doesn't work. And yet how many people do we, do we have that that's exactly what they're doing? Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, how many pastors do we have where that's what they're doing? I mean, we've yeah. all preached here. We all know that, that most yeah. pastors are preaching. The way your pastor preaches to a congregation is usually how they talk to themselves. And we've all sat under people who are yelling at us and you got to feel bad for them because that's probably what their, <laughs> their life looks like, you know, in their little, little closet as they're screaming into the abyss of their soul, wondering why they haven't changed. Well, they haven't changed because change isn't something we can kind of rot in ourselves. Like change happens mm. before the face of Christ in truth. And so how do we shepherd ourselves to him? Because he is greater and he does know everything. Well, I, I both really appreciate that you did not ask us if that's something that we do, because <laughs> then we don't have to awkwardly skirt that answer. <laughs> However, you touched on two categories or two kinds of ways of seeing the challenge to spiritual formation that we've been talking about a lot on this podcast, which is the way that we can either, that, that we we find an identity by either achieving it ourselves mm-hmm. or receiving it. And you just described the, that difference between conscious and subconscious theology and how the change actually comes because we have received something, not because we are able, like we are somehow cognitively or consciously atoning for our own sins in that, in that way. Yeah, yeah. What I appreciate what you just said was how much that interwove so much into what Bryce was summarizing a few episodes about the therapeutic man. And like, there's a challenge right now in our culture where the way that we feel is our implicit source of authority for like, never mind epistemology, but just our own anthropology, the, how we see ourselves, the, that your heart can condemn you. This is something that seems extremely foreign and alien to a lot of evangelical approaches to spiritual formation because this is this is language of shame and we kind of have kind of only been operating off of categories of guilt which makes sense for an achieved identity or a conscious theology but what you're describing as a dignity value and worth or a transformation that happens through relationship mm-hmm. and in ways that we don't control and are not in the driver's seat for that sounds both terrifying and comforting at the same time. Yeah, well, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, this is where, you know, this is where Jesus's good news is su- surprising because it's profoundly good news almost because it is such bad news. <laughs> like, it's, yep. it's it, and it's, it's just explicitly, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. And, and the problem, you know, culturally, one of the, one of the issues you have in an Aristotelian framework, which is just where, one of the one we're in, is humility is not a virtue. Right? Grandiosity is a virtue. Um, and it's hmm. the magnanimous man, as, as Aristotle would have put it. And so what we've what we've had to do is we've had to make pride a good culturally. And so this is what the therapeutic man is. He's someone who's trying to advance himself and create a life in his own power, which is just what pride is. You too can be like God, right? This is the echo of the fall in the human heart. Mm. The thing that we struggle to believe is that if I lose my life, I'll really find it. And that that is good news. Um, it's the same problem with with power, right, and strength. Like uh, what we want to believe is that God wants to use me in my strength. 
what he tells us is my power is made perfect in your weakness. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. a fundamentally different sort of thing. And so with, with spirit formation, you know, a lot of what we're, we're doing is, is yeah, recognizing that we aren't generating something. See, the fantasy with holiness that people have is when people hear the word holiness, they swap it out in their minds for virtue. And so they think, oh, holiness is virtue. I know what it means to be virtuous. It means to be good. And so now we're in a moral register and we're, we're habituating a life. Well, that's not what that is. That's one, it's not what holiness is. But it's also not even possible when we're thinking of the fruit of the spirit. And this is where, you know, the whole Western tradition knew this and had answers for it that we've forgotten. So one of the classic, this is this is true as much as for the Catholics, it is for the Protestants. And this is where you have wholesale agreement post Aristotle or post Aquinas, really, where if you habituate goodness in your life, everyone would affirm that that's just natural virtue. And that's good. Yeah, there's good there. There's good pagans, right? Like you can be good in one sense and and by habituating goodness, just like Aristotle said. Now, before the face of God, none of that's meaningful. Hmm. But they had a whole separate category for spiritual growth and holiness, which was constructed on the notion of infusion. And that's a technical term, infused, but it basically means by grace alone. It is utterly gift. And that means you cannot merely habituate a life. You have to receive it. And so for a Christian, I have to ask, well, is it good to have um, self-control? Yes. But what kind of self-control? Because there's a self-control of the flesh and there's a self-control, we're told, that is a gift of the spirit, interestingly enough. That to to have spiritual self-control... I can't control myself. I have to have a fruit of the spirit to have that self-control. But it's possible, just like it was with the Galatians, that I could begin with the spirit and try to be perfected with my flesh. And I can try to sow self-control in the flesh, which is exactly what I'm doing if I'm simply trying to habituate goodness in my life. One of my favorite quotes is, I think this is Dallas Willard, but I could be totally wrong. Like, grace is not opposed to effort, only to merit. Mm-hmm. Um, or earning. earning, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Earning. And so uh, based on what you just said, you could pretty easily be like, oh, well, if I can't do anything, then what, what do I, where do I put my effort? Yeah. Well, and that's, that's precisely where we need to start. Like, and I think the key is to get there. Like, like remember you, you haven't read Romans, right. Unless you've shouted out at one point. So I just sin that grace may have, like, or should I just sin that, you know, does this matter? And then, you know, <laughs> Paul, like that's, you have to kind of shout that at some point or you haven't understood Paul. And so that is, that is the right question to ask. Well, wait a second. Like, does this, any of this matter then? And the key is, I think, to remember, again, our, our own tradition does a really great job of this. Um, we never talked about spiritual disciplines before in, in the Protestant tradition for good reason. We talked about means of grace. Hmm. And, and the problem is, I think we've, we've misconstrued grace quite a bit. Unfortunately, in our own tradition, we, you know, we've we're the tradition that gets grace, the mode of grace, right. Um, the mode of grace being it's a gift. And we really double down on that. And that's one of our great strengths, I think, is that mm-hmm. we really we were the, you know, the funny thing about grace, though, for Protestants, particularly for evangelicals, if you ever talk to an evangelical about grace, they'll they'll they'll, they'll tell you all day long. It's a gift. It's free. but imagine this. Just let me give you a parable, as it were. So you walk into my home because it's Christmas and it's crazy. So it's Christmas Day. It's crazy. Kids are running around, you know, paper, you know, wrapping paper everywhere. And if you ask my kids what they got for Christmas, and if their response was, we got gifts, you would say, yeah, yeah, but what did you get? They were free. Yes, that's true. I didn't earn them. Fair enough. Why are you just redefining <laughs> gift over and over again? And that's what we do. You notice that no one ever tells you mm. what they were given? Well, mm. what were you given? Wow. Hmm. And the, the problem with that is mm. when we don't say what we're giving, you know what we do? We reduce it down to something true, but but relatively minor. And so that's usually forgiveness. I've been forgiven. So I've been justified. So mm. guess what? Sanctification's up to me. This is why we so misconstrued sanctification, right? Where now right. we think sanctification's progressive growth or something like that. Where biblically, it's just as past tense as justification is. You have been sanctified. But now the way we construe it is the Christian life. Now I've got to grow because he's forgiven me. The reality is grace is God's self-giving. He's given himself to you. 
And so the means of grace, which is how the early evangelicals, I'm a Jonathan Edwards scholar. So I, I, you know, I've, I've written on Edwards's view of the means of grace. When he talks about fasting, listening to a sermon, reading your Bible, none of these are efficacious. Your Bible has zero power for the Reformed and Protestant tradition on its own outside of the spirit. It is always word and spirit, or it simply kills. The letter can only kill. It's only the spirit that gives life. But as a means of grace, it's a means of embracing God's self-giving. So now, it that so let me put it in this way. For, for Aristotle, let's say, the telos of my activity, my habituation is virtue. For the Christian, the telos of my activity is Christ. And as I abide in Christ, I will bear much fruit. And that, that, that dynamic totally shifts what spiritual practices are because they're oriented to a person. And this is why we always understood growth in relational terms. And it also means why now we have to talk about the heart. Wow. <laughs> you, you've just said so much. Uh, I feel like I'm trying to keep up. So let, let's talk about the heart. Uh, you know, even in our email yesterday, you kind of said, hey, just heads up, I'm going to push back a little bit on mm. this. So Jamie Smith has been super totally. influential in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, in, uh, especially in reform circles, helping us recover what we would say maybe is a, an Augustinian understanding of the way that the affections shape our, our lives and our, our behaviors, really. How do you place the heart and the affections yeah. in the work of spiritual formation? Yeah, well, you know, there, this is a hard question. There's a lot here, not the least of which is what is an affection, because that there isn't a view of that really in the tradition. There's a, there's a very wide spectrum on this. And so for someone like um, Edwards often gets misread because people read affections as emotions, for instance. Um, right. And yeah. so there's all yeah. sorts of, uh, of important uh, kind of key questions to kind of piece apart there. You know, there's quite a lot. So, so take Jamie Smith's book, you know, Desiring the Kingdom, which is the first book where he really started articulating these sorts of things. And, you know, the first two thirds of that book, it just sounded like Edwards, quite honestly, it was just the reformed tradition. It was like, yeah, we are, we are effective creatures. Like he, he probably overstates his case a bit, but I, you know, I get that. Like, I don't, I don't hold that against, I think a charitable read of him, of that's that Smith is that he's not pitting kind of the mind and the heart against each other, which would be a, I think a major error. I think he, he seems to do that at times, but I think that's that's probably not fair to him. Um, I think he's just kind of, you know, sometimes writers do that, right? You kind of really want to make your case. And so it's maybe a little over, overly contrastive. But typically yeah. in the tradition, you see affections are this integration of the whole of the self. However, we think about that. So yes, it is intellect, but it's also will. And it's the whole kind of um, affective reality of the person. Mm -hmm. Emotions are probably caught up in that, but emotions are much more fluid, right? And so emotions, I don't think, the th I think the key with emotions is they don't tell you true things about the world. They tell you true things about yourself. And I think if you just realize that, everything else kind of falls into place rather quickly. So, you know, we don't do this, mm -hmm. though, because we like to project emotions outward as if they have directionality in the world. So we th say things like, you know, she makes me so angry instead of the truth, which is right. she unveils that I'm a deeply angry person. Like that, that's what's true, <laughs> but you know, we like to put it on them, right? So like emotions are really helpful, actually. It, it, it took my counselor like 18 months to get me to uh, acknowledge that reality. I mean, and uh, yeah, she just put that so succinctly. <laughs> you know, my, my mentor used to say, which is a great, I love this image. He says, you know, emotions are like the idiot lights on the dashboard of your soul. Like your oil light on your car flashing, you don't blame the light. <laughs> blame the road. You don't blame mm -hmm. the, you look like something's under the hood here that's going on that you mm. need to pay attention to. And that's kind of what emotions do. Um, what worries me about Jamie's project, it's shocking to me that the reformed have followed him at all because his, his view is not reformed. I don't think it's Augustinian in any meaningful sense either, quite honestly, because it misses the fundamental distinction between the acquired virtues and the and, and infusion right, that I mentioned earlier. Remember the notion of infusion says none of this is habitual. You cannot habituate the spiritual life. You can't do it. It's because it's not in your power. It's received. Well, on, on his, on his thing, you know, at some point, the natural formation, the supernatural formation are on the same scale. You're just changing the direction of your action. And he seems to think is that liturgy will just do that. Um, and so in, in one sense, he, he managed mm. to make an argument that everyone knows is untrue because we've been to churches with beautiful liturgies that are collapsing to the ground. <laughs> And 
formation just didn't magically happen there, quite honestly. Um, it, it, and some of this is just, you know, philosophically, this kind of mechanistic kind of materialism that he's, he's giving. It's just kind of at the end of the day, it's kind of the, the old school behaviorists where you kind of just get Skinner popped in here where you just tweak the right gears on you and boom, holy, right? And I say, that's just not how it works. <laughs> like that's, you know, the problem with the human heart is, and this is what the entirety of scripture shows us. You can give the people God's presence and access to God's presence through beautiful liturgies and beautiful priesthoods and beautiful temples, and they will use it to avoid him at all cost. That those things aren't magic. Um, and the problem with Smith's account mm. is we, I think there's a, there's a, a kind of fantasy to, to how he thinks formation will happen there, where that often happens to converts, quite honestly. Like he's a low church con- convert into a high church, right? Four square into like, mm-hmm. that's typical kind of reaction formation that happens where, you know, you get a convert into something and suddenly it's like, literally fixes everything. You know, it's like, it just, everything I was missing is like, and you know, and um, that often kind of happens. But yeah, I mean, in, Augustine is seen as the father of the fact that no, that and you see this particularly in the Pelagian controversies, right? Like, no, no, this is, we, we don't have this power to form ourselves. And so I, I do think Smith's right about a lot in that book. I think, it, you know, I think we are effective creatures. I, I think liturgies profoundly meaningful and important. Um, I think the liturgies of the world, I mean, he, part of the reason that book did so well, I think was more of his cultural analysis probably than his, than his spiritual analysis. Yeah. The metaphor of the mall as temple, totally. I think is like what, what, what totally. put him on the map. I mean, yeah. his alien anthropology yeah. <laughs> in that book was brilliant. And, and I, and I think profoundly insightful. Um, the problem is the solution was basically no different than its secular counterpart. It was just oriented to different ends. And and that's the problem, I think, in my mind. Hmm. I'd love for you to interact with this a little bit because I think I'm a Jamie Smith fan. I don't know about Stan. Stan might be too much, but I'm still a fan. And and I know that one of the reasons why I am is because like in in this in my context where how you feel mm-hmm. about things is the locus of authority for all things, even, you know. Jesus loving Christians who come to our church, like when they're dragging their kids and trying to keep everybody like, maybe not even happy, but just like not throwing a tantrum. There's the the question of like, how is this even worth it? And it's one thing to say, you know, as you know, every pastor does, the spirit is uniquely present in the corporate gathering of God's people for worship in ways that even if you don't feel it, Jamie Smith gives an, an additional handhold onto that that kind of talks about how the the ritual or repetition of a thing is formative in terms of priorities and helps maybe, you know, at the risk of uh, an analogy that could go places I don't intend, you know, like you're putting yourself on the highway where the Holy Spirit is driving where you could get hit. Um, and at least opening yourself up to it by that. And through the, the, the repetition of ritual, there is something deeply formative about that. And that is in some, in some ways that has made a bigger difference and, and clicked for a lot of the people at, at my church more than, well, you should, because the Bible says totally. the Holy Spirit's yeah, going to yeah. change you. Like it actually kind of gives a bit of a yeah. why. I don't think that's wrong. I mean, I, I, I would be a little more hesitant to say that it is deeply formative. Um, it's, I would say it's possibly deeply formative. Um, I think we could all have plenty of examples when it wasn't. <laughs> and, that, and that's the problem with universalizing it, right? When you make it mechanistic, it's just obviously not true. Sure. Um, I think the key is with liturgy is it takes liturgy is kind of necessary, but insufficient. It, it, you know, doing liturgy, you can do liturgy to your blue in the face sure. and never actually show up in the presence of God. You can never actually intend to draw near. Um, yep. And this is where you know we we need yep. to kind of 
you know, it actually does take. And I, now again, I say in a certain natural way, I mean, and natural is not negative here. I'm not, I'm not saying like, but in a certain kind of natural formation, which we should all undergo. I mean, I think that's part of being Christian is you're, you're, you're like, there, there are certain natural things that should be transformed. There are certain rhythms we embrace because that's what faithfulness looks like. And we trust that as I give myself to these things, they're meaningful. It's not just hmm. I'm doing them because God told me like, no, no, this is, you know, this is meaningful. And um, I need to give myself to these. It doesn't mean they'll always be meaningful. And it doesn't mean that poof, magically those will, those will do it. And you know who has a great example of this is um, Lauren Winner's book, um, The Dangers of Christian Practice, which is a book she did, I think, with Yale Press, if memory serves. You know, she shows all these spiritual practices by slave owning colonists, you know, these deep prayers of, you know, giving themselves to prayers of why doesn't my, why doesn't my slave just obey me? Why do I have to come? You know, it's like, it's like, you see this, the fantasy with spiritual practices is that they aren't already interwoven with our flesh. And I think the Protestant tradition has always been the, the filthy rags tradition hmm. where actually our highest, like, if you want to see where am I most rebellious? It, it is in your devotional practices. That's where we rebel most against God. It's in our devotion. And so our liturgies are actually opportunities to have mirrors to, Lord, I don't want to be here. I'm not interested in you. I'm bored out of my freaking mind at this pastor right now, droning on about who knows what. Fair enough. <laughs> Okay. The question is, will liturgies lead you into reality or will they lead you into fantasy? And that, that wow. it exposes your need. Maybe is that a good way? Is that what you're trying to say? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, remember, the, I mean, it's similar to what that first John three nineteen passage, God is greater and he knows. So, so a liturgy needs to lead me to God and leads, you know, with the author of Hebrews, I think to draw near, like the, the whole movement of, of the Christian life is a drawing near liturgies can do that mm. or they can thwart it. Right. I mean, like there's plenty of beautiful liturgies where the goal becomes the liturgy itself. And that just isn't formative in any real sense. And now it, it is, have, there is going to be a natural formation there that sure. isn't bad in and of itself. The badness becomes when we think that just by doing it, it somehow achieves it, where we give it the um, ex opera operato status of if I just do this thing, poof, magically I'm going to be formed. And that's where we need to be really careful, I think, um, because we'll have a lot of people putting their hope in liturgy mm. and a decade in, they're going to go, is this, a, we're doing this again? Okay. Um, I guess it, maybe this will work at some point, but I'm still addicted to mm. porn and I'm still just yelled at my wife yesterday and my kids just, you know, it's like, are we, are our liturgies leading people to the truth or, or yeah. are they kind of, is it actually masking them from these things? I think is some of those questions. So I don't have to deny any of what Smith said. I think I can have all of that. If I, you know, I just, I just want to say, Hey, look, we have to have the proper telos to this thing. Um, and with Augustine, it will be God himself. And in, in his book on Augustine, I think Smith does a decent job of showing that like, like this is God's the fulfillment of these things. God's the end of these things. I think that book that he does a better job mm -hmm. of kind of, orienting it that way but i think he could be read differently yeah and, and and when the end of these things is achieving your own identity or if it is your own self-help or fulfillment or to you know have a more well-rounded life or to whatever anytime that happens you can do that with liturgy you can do that with the church as a whole i mean i think that's part of the attraction to to jamie smith is everybody's wrestling with you know using my own specific context how in the world do i try to convince our people that yes, you may feel a certain comfort and awe by going into the mountains every single weekend with your with your family, and yes, that is great and beautiful and and wonderful. However, that is not where the spirit is promised to be, and you're 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 robbing yourself of the very fuel that you you say you're longing for and looking for. But when people's experience of that doesn't yeah. compete with the mountains and the novelty and uniqueness of that, then mm -hmm. man, yeah. uh, it's, well, I, it's, it's tough. Yeah, totally. Well, I think we need to remember, you know, the liturgy of the church of the Christian church is the Exodus. Like that's what the, our liturgies are. Right. So when we come to church, we're just reenacting the Exodus. So we, you know, we, mm -hmm. we come through the waters of our baptism 
as we journey through this wilderness with the Lord in this present evil age, we sing praises to his name, drinking the spiritual drink, eating the spiritual food, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, as we make our way to the mountain of the Lord where the word of the Lord descends, right? Like we, we are reenacting the Exodus. That's just what Christian liturgies do. And so one of the things that liturgy should be doing is doing exactly what we see in the Exodus, which is showing us, as Stephen says in his speech before he's martyred, that in their hearts, they turn back to Egypt. So liturgies are supposed to be this exposing mm. reality. Mm. And then they're supposed to order us to the truth that God is in the camp. And that's that's good news, kind of. But it's also kind of bad news, right? Because God is in the camp, right? Like <laughs> the fiery serpent God, right? Like, the, you know, it's like, so like, how do we navigate these things? And that's where this call to draw near. I mean, liturgies are, 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 are helping us kind of navigate mm. now the truth. And so liturgies should be beautiful, I think, but they also should be at times disturbing. Um, they should be at times unnerved. Mm-hmm. Like they, they should be these mirrors that say you've drawn near, but do you know who you've drawn near to? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and that's where, again, mm-hmm. keeping in mind, I think the context of the mm-hmm. Exodus, I think, is is an important one to bear in mind when we think about some of mm-hmm. these things. So I, I just want to see if maybe I can clarify, because it, it sounded like you're pushing back on spiritual disciplines, practices, liturgy, it, it sounds like you're not really pushing back on liturgy so much as a mechanistic view of liturgy. Yeah, that would be right. Yeah. Because I mean, every, I mean, there's no such thing, I and mean, this is Smith's great point, right? There's no such thing as non-liturgy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the right. megachurch is just as liturgical yeah. as anyone else. Yeah. Um, they've just, you know, chosen, right. you know, newer versions and <laughs> just depressing liturgy. It's just really depressing. Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's super, super expensive. expensive. Yeah, yeah. Fog, fog machine liturgies and what have you. Um, yeah. And, and you know, I would call my church liturgical, for instance, um, like explicitly so. Like, um, and and mm. yet, yet our liturgy begins with a prayer of intention uh, that starts our liturgy because we want to intend to, to do something, which is to be with God in, in truth. Mm. Um, because you can do, you can go through a church service and never intend anything other mm. than getting there. Mm. Right. And I, and I do have little kids chasing around. I got it. So I need to intend something cause I, I'm barely there. You know, it's like, okay, let me just, you know, I want to be here, Lord. Um, and so liturgy and spiritual practices in a, in a similar way, again, we have to remember just like are the conversation we've had about identity. Um, these are things that are received and it is God at work in us that doesn't somehow negate our action, but we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling precisely because it is God at work. <laughs> and so this working out occurs in as response mm. to God's presence and action. But that means it, it needs to take on, right, this reception. And I think, you know, this is why I think formation in general, and this is, I've been highly influenced by um, several folks in this area, um, not the least of which is Edwards, is that, you know, the, the Christian life and virtue is just love. So he, he would read, and I would read the fruit of the spirit as singular. The fruit of the spirit is love and semicolon, right? Mm-hmm. And then you explain how love refracts mm-hmm. through a human being. Well, now as those who have the spirits infusing love, we might say into the heart, right? That's just Romans 5, 5, really pouring forth love into the soul. How, as, as I'm giving myself to the Lord, as I'm drawing near, how is my capacity for patience being transformed by love? How is my listening and my capacity to listen being transformed by love? Because that, that ultimately, my, the retraining I have to go through in the Christian life, what Willer's talking about there with, with grace and not, not being opposed to effort, but opposed to earning, that effort, though, is an effort to receive love and to reconstruct the foundation of my person on love. And ultimately on Christ. So it's, it is mm. the polar opposite of the self-generated mm-hmm. life, which is what pride established us in, in the fall that I create a life in my power. And it's now the, the reality that my life is hidden with Christ in God. That is who I am. So to know who I am, I don't primarily go inward, although that will be necessary. I think I'll, I'll agree with Augustine here. It actually takes a descend in order to ascend to God in truth. The descent is to see the truth, which ultimately will reveal the deep neediness of soul that I have, the desperation I need to have and find in myself so that I can embrace the truth that my life 
isn't defined by what's in me. <laughs> my life is defined by Christ. This is just where Luther was right. Like if I look at my life mm. alone, I'm done for. I have to be with Christ. And so when I see myself and descend into the truth and name it, it's not to somehow discover myself. Like that's the therapeutic man. If I just look deeply enough and I'll eventually find myself. No, you'll find your desperation. You'll find your fallen self. Sure, <laughs> you'll find all sorts of problems. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It, you have to look there to discover him. And, that, and that's where we become ourselves. Um, you know, let me share really quickly um, one of my favorite lines. This is a line from um, a Catholic theologian, actually, Hans Urs von Balthasar. And von Balthasar um, said, you know, no amount of soul searching could, could Simon have ever discovered, has ever discovered Peter. That had to be spoken mm. over him by the Lord. Simon wasn't Peter. Mm. He was a rock. He wasn't <laughs> Simon. That, that wasn't true of him. It was only true of him as he imbibed Jesus, as he abided in Christ. And so that, that same is true of us. Like, like what God has called us to isn't, isn't who we are. It's not found within us. It's found within him. And, and that, that is the logic of Protestant spirituality is that salvation hasn't primarily occurred in you at all. It's occurred in Christ. And so look to him. Hmm. Kyle, how, give us some help on like, how, hmm. how do we get started? You know, a, a lot of our, um, I think listeners, not exclusively, but a lot of our listeners are pastors and especially in light of the year that hmm. we've just come through and we've, we've seen how much culture is not just throwing ideas around, but culture is forming yeah. us for the, I was going to say for better or for worse, <laughs> but I think we can mostly agree it's for the worse. And, and so, yeah, liturgy is a, is a, we know we can't just, it's not just about teaching better information to people. And I think many of us, this is my story, at least who grew up in kind of the mega church world are going, it has to be more than just creating these like neat little experiences for people. Liturgy becomes a, an, a good go-to because it's something we can give people, right? Totally. It's something we can invite people into that is not just the relentless pursuit of the novel. How do we get, how do we get started? Yeah. You know, if we, if we're wanting to, to create a church culture that is, that is, I'm hesitant to say doing the work of spiritual formation because it's the Holy Spirit who's doing the work of formation in us. But how do we, how do we build a church culture in which that is happening, in which Christians are being formed by the Spirit. And maybe just to put a, I don't want to reframe Bryce's question, but I think we were, we are definitely heading on the same direction, but maybe even more concretely, what the pandemic has exposed is a grossly deficient, in many ways, there's many things that's exposed, but a grossly deficient yeah. ecclesiology uh, in the church and the liturgy that Bryce is talking about has is is most abused and misused in the ways you're talking about when it becomes this faddish thing we do because we enjoy it or like it, uh, like either on our own or like only with the people that we 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 enjoy being around. That mm. like there's an em the mm. disembodiedness that this pandemic has caused is exposing all of these preferences in a ways that is almost mm. like a liturgical counter liturgy yeah. that I think is kind of condemning. And so in, in the individualism that we are swimming in and is in the air we breathe that is shaping us and forming us to not appreciate like the fact that we can, we think that we can be in a relationship with God apart from the body of Christ or the bride of Christ is damning to our actual spiritual maturity. So, so maybe with what Bryce is talking about, if you could just maybe talk, especially answer his yeah. question within the context of like how the church is the means of grace that we are longing for and searching for. And what does that look like? How can we learn from this? Yeah. Yeah. No, there's so much there. I mean, this is, this, this could be, you know, another season in and of itself, I suppose. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I do think there, there is some necessary teaching. I mean, some of this is, Remember, I talked earlier about how conscious theology is a kind of shepherd of your soul in the presence of God. Well, even good theology is going to discover that in the presence of God, it kind of falls apart, but it needs to kind of shepherd you in truth, right? So if, you know, again, 1 mm -hmm. John three nineteen, your heart condemns you. Well, you need to know Romans 8, 1. There's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, right? So that that's the voice that says there's no condemnation here. Your heart is condemning you. And that needs to order you to God. And so 
there's there, mm. but nonetheless, if you have bad conscious theology, now you have a false shepherd in your soul shepherding you. And, and unfortunately, that has happened. That happens with spiritual practices, the way we think about them. That happens with the doctrine of sanctification and the way we think about it. That's happened, to your point, with the doctrine of the church and how we've understood ecclesiology. I, I think one of the most pervasive is power. I think both pastors and congregants mm. alike have bought into the lie that God will use them in their strength. We actually know exactly where God's leading us. He has not hidden this fact. He's leading you into your weakness so you can know his power. If you have a bad conscious theology of what God's power is, you will see his guidance as abandonment. If, if you have a misguided view of God's power, you will interpret his guidance as abandonment. I mean, let's just think about some examples. What does the spirit come upon Jesus to do? Send him to be tempted in the desert. If, if one of your congregants gets sent by the spirit in the desert to be tempted, so to speak, are they going to interpret that as, okay, Lord, what do you have for me here? Or God, why have you abandoned me? <laughs> or let's say one of your, well, I won't use one of your congregants for this one because it gets a bit messy. Let's just use Paul, right? Paul gets called up into the third heaven. Wow. This is amazing. You know, what's fascinating about that visionary experience Paul had, it didn't mm. shape his character. So now God gives him a second gift. You're welcome, Paul. Here's a messenger of Satan. Mm. <laughs> this will keep you humble. You need this. Take it away, Lord. No. Take it away. No. <laughs> my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. See, if, if that would happen to most of us, God, God, why have you left me? I haven't left you. <laughs> this is a gift. This is for your humility. God, why aren't you doing anything? What are you talking about? I'm right here. I'm doing this. Right? John Owen once was reflecting on this passage, the great Puritan theologian. And Owen says, you know, some people are sitting there praying, God, take this sin away from me. God, take this sin away from me. God, take this sin away from me. And God's sitting there looking down at this person going, if I took this sin away from you, you would never come to me again. That's not, that wouldn't help you. You haven't learned how to abide. Why would, I, why would I give you freedom from this? See, the Lord has told us he's guiding us into de dependence upon him. He's guiding us to abide. He's guiding us to know his power in our weakness. Think about how you pray. If God answered your prayers, would that be good for your prayer life or not? For many of us, it would be terrible for us if God answered our prayers the way we wanted him to. It would lead us totally away from God. I might be opening a huge can of worms here. I'm sorry, Bryce. We're sitting here like on our Google Doc talking back and forth of like, which question should we end with this here? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm just literally going to ruin it. I'm just imagining, and, and this is just how I operated most of my life. Like I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of my neighbors here in Boulder County. And, and especially mm. in a church that's filled with um, what I describe as, as post-evangelicals who are... Sure really over everything evangelical, the subculture, the Christianese, the, you know, what feels like systemic rampant rank abuse and selfishness, mm. the protectionism, like all of that. And they're like, the reason why I am fed up with that is because I'm reading a, a scripture that calls us to something really different. And I'm, and, and mm -hmm. there's a, a tension there that they don't know what to do with it. But when they voice the tension in an evangelical church or their previous church before the table, that it would be met with like, you're questioning the presuppositions here. Don't do that. Don't you do that. No, you, that's not allowed, right? That's a mild form of that could go all the way to like looking at the abuse and scandal that has happened within the evangelical church over the last good Lord, few years in particular. But mm -hmm. when you say that our bad definitions and understandings, misunderstandings of power can misinterpret God's faithfulness as abandonment, I feel like there are a few potential implications for that, that community, right? And, and I'm thinking mm. especially about <laughs> I, I had not heard the term deconstruction on a daily basis like I have for the last three or four months in particular. And totally. in, the, in New York Times just had this 
a story about Abraham Piper, John Piper's son, leaving the faith and having almost as many followers mm -hmm. on TikTok as John Piper does on Twitter. There, there is a lot of confusion about power, mm -hmm. both within evangelicalism yeah. and those leaving evangelicalism. Can you talk a little bit about how, like with what you just said, how that has something to say in, in, this, in this kind of historic cultural moment? Oh, totally. And that this is why I think it's it's such an important to get this teaching right, because it's in terms of and I know, um, Bryce, you wanted to turn a practical <laughs> corner, which we're not quite getting to, but it's that's which is OK. This is, this okay. is the tension um, between us the whole time, the whole podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, this is where like I mean, honestly, this is what I do in my classes with like my students don't get the doctrine of sanctification at all. They have no idea what it is. And so I have to start back and say, you have been sanctified. If you haven't been sanctified, you have no hope in the Christian life because you can't draw near if you haven't been sanctified. And so it's, if it's something you're trying to achieve, you're done for. So I, I you need to start there because they need a shepherd of their soul in the presence of God that helps constantly reframe mm -hmm. what's going on. And power is the big one in my mind. This is, this is such a huge issue. My worry is, so the evangelicalism you're talking about, a lot of these people have abandoned. It's an evangelicalism that assumed um, very nice, like, like in many ways, like most of us do as infants in Christ. So you, the, one of the problems with spiritual immaturity is we come to think that the Christian life is predicated on our action because it, it was early on. That's how God tra treated us. So if we went to a Bible study, we were excited. If we sang as loud as we could, we were filled with joy and, and, and consolation. It was like, oh, this is great. And we give ourselves to it. And we learned in our naivete that if I give myself to this, I grow. And somehow growth and my experience was somehow directly connected causally to my action. Well, in growth, as it always is, <laughs> we come to learn it wasn't quite that simple. And suddenly, just with Jesus, just like with Jesus, the Spirit too sends us to the desert. And we come to realize that um, God isn't, isn't tethered mm. to us in that in that regard. And that, and the problem is the people that that were a part of these, this evangelicalism, they saw this, this movement use its bigness and its excitement and its cultural cachet as evidence of its truthfulness, which is just as naive as the person that thinks their, their excitement is attached to them. The problem though, is they haven't yet abandoned their view of power. Mm. So these people leave the evangelical church, they haven't changed their view of power. So they haven't actually changed. And this is where, like, you know, deconstruction is just as arrogant and is just as unfaithful. We're never to give ourselves to deconstruction. We're to give ourselves to Jesus who deconstructs. And that's a fundamentally different thing. God is the great iconoclast, as Lewis says. It, if, if you follow Jesus, you'll have plenty of deconstruction. That's not your job. If you do it, that's just unfaithful. <laughs> that's just lacking faith. But if you follow Jesus, you want, you want real deconstruction? Follow the Lord who led his disciples to the, to the mm. cross. You'll find deconstruction aplenty. But if you do it yourself, what kind of, what do you think you're guiding yourself? I mean, it's, it becomes an agenda that shockingly, where does it lead? I guess everything we currently culturally believe is true. <laughs> well, if that's where you're going, that's just, I mean, that's just sad, quite honestly. Jesus provides much more meaningful deconstruction than that. I feel like I thought I was playing two-dimensional chess and just found out that I was actually playing and losing at three-dimensional chess. So thank you. Yeah. The locus of the deconstruction, who is the one doing the deconstruction? Is it something that's happening to us? Are we receiving it or are we mm -hmm. achieving it? Once again, it's still a different direction, but the same bad foundation same power. for how we're building our identity. It's still power from the self and for the self, which is to use the image from James 3, which is the power system built on the world, the flesh, and the devil, which is a singular power mm. system. The, the way from above James names is the counter way, which is the way of Jesus, which is power in our weakness mm. for the sake of love. And that way is the way of truth. That, that's, that's where life is found. And um, it is the way of deconstruction, <laughs> quite honestly. But now it's Jesus mm. is the one deconstructing, and it's the deconstruction that is necessary for love. Wow. Kyle, I just want to end by asking you this question. You're a systematic theologian. You don't 
speak like a systematic theologian. And I mean that in, in a, I think in a great way. Yes. Your, um, that was a compliment. I know your dad is a well-known apologist. I'm, I'm guessing you grew up mm-hmm. in a, in a committed Christian home that placed a high value on, you know, the, the intellect and, uh, just tell us a little bit about your journey into spiritual formation, because you're you're clearly just deeply rooted in Scripture and everything we've we've talked about. But there's an experiential knowledge that is coming through in, in the way that you're talking with us that I've really appreciated. Just maybe as we close, could you just give us a little of your story? Yeah, well, you know, the Lord's been kind to me. I, you know, I I'm not your typical academic although I would have become it if he would have allowed me to, I think, in my flesh, mm. which is just someone who can just kind of wield their intellect at these things. It was it was always way too existential for me. I, I couldn't have just done it. I, 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 I could only have given myself to something that helped me understand life with God. Um, and perhaps the greatest gift was that he never let me teach my area of mm. expertise. You know, most people get dropped in to teach classes that are either right where their expertise is or, or close enough where now they're learning and they're just kind of, and so they're teaching doctrine classes, right? Justification, sanctification, regeneration, you know, whatever. And so what do you do? You just, you're just spending years immersed trying to articulate, this is what we believe. I got dropped into these classes that are, are you know, talk about why people's prayer lives feel like death explain what union with Christ is like and what that entails. Talk about what, what it means to practice spiritual disciplines and why we struggle at them and what they're for. And, and so all of these questions, they bring together scripture, theology, mm-hmm. all of it. But they, they also added that existential piece to it where suddenly I had to wrestle through you know, things that we can easily take for granted. Like, what does it mean when Paul says it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in Galatians 2.20? You know, it's easy to affirm that. What does that actually mean? <laughs> what do you mean it's no longer I who live? Like, and now I'm forced not only to give an account of that, but to give an account that actually explains my students' experience back to them. Because when they're in my classes, I want to I want to tell them. Let me I want to explain their actual experiences. This is what someone like Edwards did. You know, when Edwards, you know, and this is what to be honest, we always used to do before the Enlightenment. Every theologian, every pastor understood that their job was to, to explain what the Christian life was in reality, not abstractly. And so, you know, Edwards, who's a cessationist, of course, as, as they all were, there's no such thing as miraculous gifts, tongues, or any of that stuff. And yet, in the middle of his preaching, someone jumps up screams and falls over and starts writhing around on the ground. And Edwards goes, huh, maybe that's the spirit. Let's interview them. <laughs> he's just talking to them. Like, well, what's going on right now? Like, well, I don't know, maybe. Like, and, he's, and he's coming up with what, and, and so he's trying to think theologically in such a way that helps people in their actual lives understand mm-hmm. what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And so, you know, this, it, it's funny because looking at my life, I, this is not what I would have done on my own. I, mean, that's, I, I know myself well enough to know I, I would have I would have gone to my strength, and the Lord simply did not let me. He He pushed me into my weakness. Where now, um, I you know I have, I have to teach a class you know that was designed by a psychologist that was you know integrates kind of how do we think psychologically, how do we think theologically and biblically, how do we integrate that all together? What is a person? What is growth? What is like you know, how do I do that? Like, I'm not trained for this. <laughs> you know? So it's like, I'm just in seminars, you know, res- reading this stuff. And I was, and, and that has been such a gift to me. Um, but it, it, again, it wasn't my strategy. It wasn't my, my savvy that led me here. It was the Lord's refusal to let me do what in my flesh I wanted to do, which was sit, you know, t- give me a doctrine class any day of the week when I can just kind of, you know, well, we did this, the medievals did this, the reform did this, you know, and just map all day long. Great. But that's, that's not where he led me. And so that, that has been probably the most profound thing. Cause it, it's forced me like it, like a lot of pastors probably where it forces me to realize like these people don't care. I, I can sit up here and wow them with my, they don't care. Like it's not meaningful. Like, but I've got students, like I know what these students are going through. I know where they're at. I know they're porn addicted. I know their marriages are failing. I know they have no idea why they're here. I know they're 
I got to speak to that. <laughs> right? well, mm. So that that's what has what has driven me. And that's that's been a profound gift. And even leading me to Edwards, I never planned to study Edwards. Um, but to find a thinker who really had given himself to those sorts of things really became a kind of model for me on on you know, how do we navigate the the real deep integrated sense of what it means to be a human being and what it means to be formed. And he just did that. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for not just for your time, but for, I mean, you have, uh, you, you have thrown yourself into this work in a way that is, um, I think uniquely helpful as we just wrestle through how do we, how do we help Christians walk more faithfully with Jesus. That's what we want to do as pastors and really appreciate your time and your insight today. Thanks so much, Kyle. Yeah, of course, guys. Yeah, it's good to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks so much for joining us today. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our new theme music was recorded by Danny Rankin, who also designed our logo. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world on Everything Just Changed.